we as Anishinaabe people were given our language, our sound. And so us as a spiritual being in the physical body and we have the mind working for us and everything's connected, that sound is a vibration that's different than English. It's melodic. It's, it's incredibly complex and beautiful. Buju Anin, welcome to Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. I'm your host, Cole Primo. And I'm your other host, Leah Lem. Miigwech for joining us. Native Lights is a place for Native folks to tell their stories and share their gifts and how they found their purpose. And it all centers around my personal mission, Cole's personal mission of amplifying Native voices. And here we are again today, Cole. How's it going? I've been actually kind of excited recently. Uh, at my main gig, uh, WCCO in down uh, in Minneapolis, we are going to be doing a story on the Rosetta Stone project. Really looking forward to having that broadcast and played for people in Minnesota. So, so it's happening. Awesome. It actually kind of segues to our guest today, who is heavily involved in that uh, that project with. Malax Band of Ojibwe and Rosetta Stone, which is part of the Anchibamatising program, um, which has also produced these Ojibwe books. So that's why I'm excited to talk to today's guest, who is Absolutely. Babita Boyd. Babita Boyd is a Malax Band of Ojibwe citizen. She's the band's deputy commissioner on language revitalization initiatives, and part of that work includes the Anchibamatising program which uh, developed that partnership with Rosetta Stone and published five Ojibwe moment books of stories collected from first speakers, including our dad, we will say. In addition to that, she was also awarded a Bush Leadership Fellowship in 2017, which is very prestigious and looking forward to asking her about all of that today. Yeah, that sounds awesome. We, we always like to start out with, uh, you know, could you just introduce yourself and, you know, where you're joining us from? My name is Babito, and I am joining you from Malax Corporate Ventures headquarters today. And I am serving right now in the capacity of Deputy Commissioner in the Office of the Chief Executive uh, under Chief Executive Benjamin's direction in the executive branch of our Mille Lacs band government. Very nice. Thank you so much. You know, we're going to talk about a lot of things today. We're going to cover a lot of ground, I think. Um, but I'd like to ask before we really get into it and kind of to kick it off, um, what's on the top of your mind right now? What's kind of um, taking priority in your work life at the moment? I think my what's on the top of my mind and what I wake up and think about and what I go to sleep thinking about is kind of what is what is my purpose and what am I enjoying with my work and my contribution to our community. And so I have um, a bit of a flair as an extrovert for um, networking and relationship development. And I and I kind of I get really charged up on problem solving and solution making. And so Part of my um, part of my excitement at work is being a part of leadership discussions and trying to make sure that everything that the band is 
is doing is in the best interest of band members and direct services that are provided to our citizenship. And so, um, so that's one of the things, but also the language revitalization piece and the cultural renormalization piece is something I'm very excited and proud of. And sometimes I struggle with how much time and attention am I giving to English speaking work and how much time and attention am I giving to Ojibwe language personal development and education, educating my children and my, um, my, my community and, and, and how do I preserve myself so that I can do both and enjoy both. Wonderful. Obviously language revitalization is a big part of your life. What set you down the path to be involved in this, you know, this effort of language revitalization? So when I was, it's funny because I haven't stumbled upon a really great answer for this until the last 18 months or so. I I thought I knew. And then the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. And then you mm-hmm. kind of stumble upon, you know, these, these things that you're learning about yourself um, when you're reflecting. So when I was in the second grade, my teacher asked us what we wanted to be when we grew up. And the only thing my little mind could come up with that was exciting to me was being a translator at the United Nations. Oh, now, nice. I, I like to think that that came from like the rescuers, you know, with those little mice and they were all speaking different languages and they were meeting. Who knows where that came from? But then also, you know, working with fluent speakers, Obazan has taught me over, you know, decade, over a decade um, and kind of like program me to just believe wholeheartedly that we all have a purpose, right? And so no matter what you do to avoid that or externally distract yourself with whatever it is, you're always going to find yourself wanting to to pursue something, something that makes you happy. And it's usually something that's in service to your community, whatever community you identify with and work, work, work with. And so language revitalization, um, when I showed up to... Um, to college when I was 18, I went to Fond du Lac Tribal and Community College. And that was my first instance and first example in life where I saw that there were healthy Native American or Ojibwe people that wanted to learn. I've never experienced that. I was the only band member to graduate from our public school that's near the um, near District 2 where I'm from. And it, it was every four or five years there would be a band member that would graduate. But usually the majority of us there would would drop out at some point for whatever reason. And so when I when I showed up ill prepared mind you for for my tribal college experience I I I was exposed to um Ojibwe language teachers that had at the time high functioning language proficiency, you know, from what from my perspective not having any language background. And so it was really exciting and they were encouraging. And so I found this new community of, of people that were second language learners that weren't shy or afraid or ashamed to speak Ojibwe and or to just hang out and be funny adults. But at my 17 turning 18, showing up to a campus where there were people in their mid-20s that were working on language, it was really um, refreshing to see that like, holy man, like, I matter as an Ojibwe person and there's all these people here that care about being Ojibwe too. And so there was this kind of awakening that happened with me um, early in the 2000s. The other thing that's been really big in my life that has helped me move forward in language revitalization and kind of has been the, the driving force is 
when I was in, in my teens, my grandparents, my grandmother's brothers and sisters started passing away. So that generation of people started passing away. They were in their mid fifties and she had 10 or 11 siblings and um, they were passing away two or three at a time. And so we were being exposed to the funeral ceremony and then also the funeral translation. Um, And prior to that, you know, as a young child, you're not really welcome at funerals for a number of different cultural reasons. But when I showed up to those funerals as a teenager, I realized there was a whole nother world of um, explanation around death and that that death was just one piece of this whole lifespan that we have. So there, there were all these missing pieces of explanation of our worldview and how we could, Mm -hmm. how we process, you know, living that I wasn't exposed to. And so that also um, was something that really ignited language, um, passion for language revitalization in me is just knowing that there, there's, there's something that helps us move through life from an Ojibwe perspective and Ojibwe lenses. And um, we can, we can look for those um, by spending time with um, older generations. You're listening to Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. Native Lights is produced by Minnesota Native News and Ampers with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Today we're speaking with Babita Boyd, Black's Band of Ojibwe's Deputy Commissioner on Language Revitalization Initiatives. I, I keep having this question that I want to ask, but I'm not sure it's the right question. I have started and stopped and started and stopped my own Ojibwe Moen learning. So like, how was the process for you then? It sounds like there was immense motivation and an immediacy to your, your almost like a need to yeah. learn. Yeah. And I'm wondering, how was that for you? Like, was it hard? Were you like uh, yeah, studying I, I, and? <laughs> sure, I, I can speak to that. So just yeah. like, um, so I, I, I don't want to forget. So one of those things that I want to talk about has to do with um, insecurity. Hmm. But, the, uh, but the first thing I would say is that like working out, like anything that you apply, you know, to a behavior change, that consistency is important. And building it into your day is important. And also knowing that you're going to plateau or lose interest is important and not <laughs> having judgment on yourself about it. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So going back to the insecurity thing, lo and behold, who would have thunk it that the American Western education model or the public school model is not going to work for an indigenous person or a child with Anishinaabe spirit. Right. You go into mm-hmm. a school the colonizers school. And then you're, you're learning in a language that is not yours, that, that, that doesn't resonate with your spirit, the values, the culture, cultural practices, religious practices that soothe your spirit and nurture you are not, are not there, are not present. And so you just make it right. You make it by fitting in with which crowds you fit in. I was a big, um, I played the trumpet for like seven or eight years. I played volleyball for four or five years, six years. And so I had hobbies, but I, but I didn't have me. Right. And I was always in, in this, this deficit of like, something's missing and something's not enough. And, and I totally believe that. Right. I totally believe that. And so I got to say that my language learning in, in when I started in my first year of college um, was not out of like because I was so disciplined. It was because because I 
was good at it by being being an extrovert and the way that I process information, I had to talk it out in order for me to get it. And so for me to try it, mimic people practice um, and then memorize things. And like I said, you know, what do you want to be when you're when you're eight? I wanted to be a, a translator um, <laughs> the UN for God's <laughs> sakes. Um, that when I uh, when I started getting good at memorizing things and sounding somewhat like uh, like somebody who knew what they were talking about, I ran with that. I ran with that out of insecurity because it made me special and unique compared to my my peers or whoever else I was around. And and so for the first few years of my learning, it was out of it was significantly like now that I look at it, it was out of desperation and insecurity, mm-hmm. like. I want to be the best because I, you know, because I don't know what my value is as a person and what, and I don't know who I am as an Anishinaabe person as a whole nother layer to that, you know, knowing who you are. Right. And so because I had a flair for the memorization piece, I just kind of ran with that. And eventually that wasn't enough. Right. And so it wasn't until I started spending more time with Obazan that um, and spending time with grieving people at funerals that I really started to understand what language was for. Like, why why do we have a why do we have a language? What what, what is English? What's what purpose does English serve us throughout today? It serves us to be understood, to love and to connect. Right. To emote all of those things to thrive you have to have a form of communication in order to be functional and to to be able to share messaging share under, share understanding with whoever you're interacting with and the thing is is that we as Anishinaabe people were given our language our sound and so um, the thing is, is that us as a spiritual being in the physical body and we have the mind working for us and everything's connected, that sound, I feel like, and I don't have any scientific research or data to support it, but it's a vibration that's different than English. It's melodic. It's organized, linguistically organized, and is is incredibly complex. And so it's not some gibberish that's like thrown together and then you know these Indians made sense of it it's it's incredibly complex and beautiful right when it's all mapped out and so um I just want to be really honest with the people who are listening that my language wasn't I I will never profess or confess that I am just a disciplined language learner and everybody should behave this way but but really you're a human you're an imperfect human and you're kind of moving through it um and I had to really look back and reflect on like what motivated my learning in my earlier years and then what motivated my learning in my later years. And more so it's about the execution of ceremony and supporting people spiritually that kind of that I grew into. I appreciate that so yeah. much. And in my own reflection of what motivates me, it has in part been because of the Anjabimadizing project and seeing those books come out and seeing all these stories, especially, you know, with our dad also being a part of the project. And now I'm like, I want to know what these stories say (laughs) because I, you know, without knowing the language, I'm not going to necessarily know what they say. (laughs) Like I've gotten my dad to tell me a little bit about, you know, one of them, but, um, it, that's kind of like, you know, there are these stories that we can 
that we've been gifted and I want to be able to understand. You're listening to Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. Native Lights is produced by Minnesota Native News and Ampers with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Today we're speaking with Babita Boyd, Malak's Band of Ojibwe's Deputy Commissioner on Language Revitalization Initiatives. All these revitalization initiatives uh, that we've talked about, you know, the Rosetta Stone, the the uh, the Ojibwe books. What has it been like seeing these these all these things pay off? You know, they're available online and they've been published. And how has it how has it been seeing that whole process? And just curious about that. To be perfectly honest, it it it's the books is the books is one thing, right? You physically have it in your hand. The Rosetta Stone, you can log into it, you can see it. But the 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 sh- the excitement is not going to come until I hear people that speak Ojibwe. Um, sure. you know, that I have never met before, right? Because most second language learners know all the other second language learners is a very small group of people. Um, and so, so, but, but overall it's a thrill to know that because of Rosetta Stone's, um, viability and because of the strategic language instruction and evaluation that's built within the software, that it can potentially be used at all public schools in Minnesota, right? And it could be offered to all children of the state of Minnesota because Ojibwe one is a heritage language of the state and it should be offered. Like that's Definitely. the thing that's so thrilling and exciting is that, you know, why we teach, um, like we understand, I understand completely why um, Spanish is offered. German, however, do we have a really big German speaking <laughs> population in Minnesota right now? Like, <laughs> And, and nothing against it. I took it in high school. I took German in high school. Yeah. <laughs> it was fun. It was fun, you know. Um, yeah. But there's, but then again, there's, there's thousands of Ojibwe children that are in public schools and, and they're not offered their, they're not offered their language. Yeah. They're offered, um, they might be offered through any kind of Indian education or religious or religious time. They might be offered something um, like supplemental, but even then are there enough people who are like qualified educators or licensed teachers that have a language foundation that can provide quality language instruction? I'm going to say no. And so we're doing a disservice to Indian children by not providing authentic depictions of Indians in their edge, in their education spaces, um, both through like literacy and um, literature, music, arts, all of that. And then, and then the language piece also and history. Let's go there. We don't have to go there, Mm -hmm. but we could. (laughs) i'm beginning to realize it more and more i mean it's kind of weird to say that but just the fact that ojibwe dakota isn't taught in schools because it's a part of the land that these schools are on like i don't get the why that isn't an interest like why why people don't want to offer that it just seems so strange to me really does well you know the thing is, is that education, the, the education systems that we have, all the systems that we function in, including tribal governments, are imposed federal and then state mandated systems. And they're designed by, they aren't designed by Indigenous people at all. Yeah. And so the thing is, is that when it comes to teacher education, teacher preparation, and then all of the requirements, there is nothing designed in that system and offered to Indigenous people who want to be educators right? Mm. That is going to be comprehensive in language, cultural, uh, cultural education, or, uh, or some type of 
theology and then also, um, you know, the teacher prep piece and the practicum piece so that you can take your test and you can become an educator, right? A licensed teacher. So therefore you're going to have all of these barriers for people who um, have a desire to make sure that, 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 that there's space for indigenous indigeneity inside of it in, in education in those systems as it is, there are no, there's nothing of that sort, right? So we have the bachelor's of Ojibwe language at the university of Minnesota, which is phenomenal. And hear about a lot of people doing really well there. They have the immersion house. And now kind of the next steps are like, how do we create immersion teachers at a faster rate that we are losing fluent speakers? Can we do that? Right. Mm -hmm. In my bio, part of my education in my fellowship with the Bush Foundation was studying behavior design. Right. So how do we make make personal changes and, and uh, scaling it back, the foundation of that um, that work was how do we create like 20 kick-butt language teachers like next year, mm-hmm. like in 12 months? How do we do that? And that they're completely immersed in Ojibwe Moen to a degree where they have a really great grip on it and they are learn- they're completely informed about the mechanics and they can make words and they can keep up with their students and then have them teacher trained also. How can we do that? And the thing of it is, is that until you change very basic, your default settings right now as it is, um, just like working out or eating healthy or any other type of behavior change that you that you desire, you have to make these tweaks and these changes and you have to be prepared for a relapse or a change. And you have to try to like, you iterate yourself into, you know, into the desired behavior, right? And so that was the goal is like, how do we change 20 people at once? And so, um, and so I went to school to study just strictly like what kinds of things are happening in the brain when we're motivated, when we're not motivated, when we're, um, when we're trying to make these daily changes. And then how do we, how do we find compassion for ourselves when we go back to a default setting? Right. Mm -hmm. And then what do we do to our environment and the things that we have in our, in our spaces that are going to help us be more successful. And so we, so I try to apply that to language revitalization. And, um, you know, I've heard when with language learning, people have always like labeled things in their house, right? Like that's something that people have tried to do. Like, I'm going to label the cupboard, I'm going to label the fridge, or I'm going to label the silverware just so that they can um, normalize seeing Ojibwe Mwen in their household. But like at my learning level, at my peak kind of learning level where I was trying to grow my vocabulary, I created whole wallpaper with just all Ojibwe Mwen. My whole house was giant post-it paper full of vocabulary and translations and paradigms so that I could change how to say sentences. And I really wanted to make the richest possible physical environment for language as as possible. That's really, that's very smart. You know, sometimes it, you know, it takes effort to get out of that valley, that like rut of default settings. It takes a lot of energy to like get up that hill, trying to get out of that default setting. And I'm wondering, you know, before we say, see you later, if there's any other like closing thoughts you might have, any um, maybe advice for up and coming language learners, language warriors, for get, kind of getting started and getting the, the traction going with language learning. So 
I guess I wouldn't be doing Obazan justice if I left out the spiritual component. <laughs> so what I would say is that as Anishinaabe people, we were given a prescribed set of ceremonies from birth to death in order for us to process life, process suffering, grief, loss, all of the, the heaviest emotions, and then also um, learn and absorb whatever it is we're supposed to do while we're here and, and, and kind of execute our purpose. And so, um, and so what we're taught is that there's another existence for us beyond this physical world and that the things that we're, all we're doing here is we're learning. And, um, and when we think about those ceremonies, those prescribed ceremonies, they weren't thrown together last year or like 10 years ago. They've been doing them for generations and for good reason, right? Because generations ago, we had a much more clean and clear and less distorted relationship with our natural world, right? We were out harvesting more often, picking medicines, self, um, sustaining ourselves with um, food and um, whether it was grown or if we were hunting. And so we had a much more spiritual connected, spiritually connected um, relationship with each other as in our kinship and our clans and our families and our extended families and then also with the natural world. And when we think about our language, our language is organized by by animacy and not by gender, mm -hmm. right? Is it living? Is it not living? And so our language at a deeper level communicates to us, the person using the language, and when we're when we're think, talking with one another, um, kind of it already has predetermined, predetermined, you know, if something is living and how much respect and how much consideration it should be given, right? The snow, the ice, um, a kettle, right? Uh, these, these things that are like animate, right? Mm -hmm. Feathers. Some fruits are animate, some aren't, you know? And my point is, is that if for anybody listening who's interested in, you know, connecting with themselves as an Anishinaabe person, like, just know just relax in the idea that we've had generations of prescribed ceremonial rituals that help us as humans, but then also with the mind and the spirit using our language, we get to, when we, when we have a good working knowledge of our language and we understand the person doing the ceremony, that helps us on a deeper level manifest the, the healthy things that we're asking for, the good life that we're asking for, the blessings and being watched over, being taken care of, being helped if we're suffering, all of those things so that we can move through life, we can move with ease, that we can love and take care of one another or, um, and, and that we have, you know, that we're able to enjoy ourselves while we're here. And that's what I would leave you with. Jimmy Gwage. Yeah, Jimmy really for that. It. Thank you for your perspective today and, uh, you know, all the work that you're doing for the community. And really appreciate mm -hmm. your time today. Miigwech. I'm really honored that you guys asked me to come and hang out. Oh, yeah. Happy <laughs> to be in the presence of Primo. Oh, Thank yes. you all. <laughs> <Back at. laughs> all right. Likewise. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Miigwech. Yeah. Okay. Well, take good care. Okay. Miigwech. Yeah. That was great. I yeah. really am thankful for her input and so much of what she talked about, and I have a lot to reflect on. <laughs> yeah, changing behaviors to 
to really push yourself uh, in you know learning language it's, it's it's such a key thing oh yeah so thank you to Bubby to Boyd uh, she is the Mlax Band of Ojibwe's Deputy Commissioner on Language Revitalization Initiatives I'm Cole Primo and I'm Leah Lem miigwech for listening Gigawabman Native Lights, Where Indigenous Voices Shine, is produced by Minnesota Native News and Ampers with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. If you want to hear more Native folks talking about their gifts and finding their purpose, search for Native Lights, Where Indigenous Voices Shine, wherever you find podcasts, and find all of Minnesota Native News' content at minnesotanativenews.org.